but, but just think about it a little bit. Is it really ethically less challenged? Because you're now creating a cell, an induced pluripotent cell, that has the ability to make any cell in the body. So shouldn't we think that that induced pluripotent cell has the same right to life? Welcome to Let's Talk Science Out Loud, the podcast that brings science to you and you to science. In every episode, we're going to explore a new topic by interviewing experts in the field, but we need your help. This podcast will be driven and directed by you. We're not only relying on our audience to tell us what you'd like to hear about, we want you to be doing the interviews. Your suggestions will direct future episodes, and you may get the chance to ask the questions yourself. So go online, tell us what questions you'd like to ask, and who you'd like to ask them. Get in touch at explorecuriosity.org, or on our Facebook page, on Twitter, or on SoundCloud, all at slash LTS out loud. My name is Ilya Arbachs-Yogas, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to this inaugural episode. To celebrate, we're launching this podcast with a special three-part series on stem cells. This past May, at the University of Toronto, experts in the field spent the day telling hundreds of high school students about the cutting edge of stem cell research. We took this opportunity to pair up one of the many amazing students attending the event with one of our speakers. And after his inspiring talk, Professor Derek Vanderkoy sat down for an interview with Claire Moffat. This conversation will form the core of these three episodes, but we'll also have Professor Ian Rogers from the Lunenfeld Institute at Princess Margaret Hospital answering questions submitted by students attending the event. Before we get to the first part of our interview with Professor Vanderkoy, however, we're going to start by sitting down with another stem cell expert, Brian Balios, who's going to introduce us to the field. Brian is an MD-PhD student co-supervised by Professors Vanderkoy and Molly Schoikett and he's going to use his exciting work on retinal stem cells to explain the unique promise that stem cell technologies hold for all of healthcare. My name is Brian Balios. I'm a, an MD-PhD student here at the University of Toronto, and I work with uh, Dr. Derek Vanderkoy and Dr. Molly Schoikett. Um, and I, I'm currently in the PhD phase of my MD-PhD training, and my research is centered around using retinal stem cells um, to restore uh, lost vision in the context of retinal degeneration. My project is mainly based around working with uh, retinal stem cells. Uh, so we're using a population of adult retinal stem cells um, to try to develop into a therapeutic to treat retinal uh, degeneration. So as a, I mean, a little bit of background is, is that right now in the, in the area of retinal degeneration, there's a number of different diseases that affect uh, uh, a broad spectrum of the population. I mean, there's diseases that affect mainly pediatric population, and that's really diseases that are inherited, like retinitis pigmentosa. Uh, there's, you know, with rising diabetic rates uh, amongst middle-aged working adults, uh, we get um, the highest rates of diabetic retinopathy in the developed world, and really diabetic retinopathy is the major leading cause of blindness in working-age adults um, in the U.S. and Canada. And then um, amongst the senior population, we have uh, macular degeneration, which you probably heard a lot about, and many people have affects uh, mainly seniors over, over 65. Um, but what all these diseases have in common is they have irreversible uh, vision loss. 
And right now, the current therapeutic options um, can only at best sort of halt the progression of the disease or slow down the disease progression. And those are the sort of drugs uh, that are injectables. And so some of them you may have heard about Lucentis and things like that. These are once-a-month injections you can use for macular degeneration. But there's nothing that really restores vision. So what we're looking to use stem cells to do are really replace cells that are lost in the adult retina and, and sort of restore that vision. Um, so that's the main thrust of the work that I do behind, behind stem cells. So funny enough, uh, I was just visiting an ophthalmology resident. Mm -hmm. Her primary complaint was exactly as you just said. I have all these people coming to me and very best they halt it and a lot of times the drugs aren't even effective. So what do you think you can offer her in terms of treatment? Well, I think eventually what's going to happen is you're going to have combinatorial therapies. You're going to have to have something that stops the underlying disease progression, whatever that, that etiology or that base cause is. So you're going to, whether it be growth of new blood vessels uh, that's disrupting the regular architecture of the retina and disrupting those cell populations, you're going to still need to use those therapeutics to sort of quell or quench that that, uh, that pathologic process. But then what we're adding is the extra step of actually putting back functional cells that are lost. Because normally the adult retina can't regenerate these cells. It's not like your skin. When you get a cut and you have new skin cells born and they grow over that cut and, and sort of wound healing. This doesn't happen in nervous tissue. So what's, what's different about nervous tissue? Nervous tissue is funny. The cells in nervous tissue are, are what we call post-mitotic, which means that they, they've uh, undergone a terminal division, they don't divide anymore, and they cannot re-enter that cell cycle. Um, so they're essentially fixed as adult cells. So it's something that, for example, our skin cells can do yes. easily? Uh, so our, our skin cells can very easily. So there's, there's, uh, there's thoughts, there's people who argue about different reasons for why different tissues regenerate. Um, some of it has to do with mechanical uh, mechanical trauma. So your skin is always coming in contact with different elements of the environment. And the idea being that you know you always want to have a baseline turnover of your skin cells, uh, so that you're always sloughing off dead or diseased skin cells and, that and replacing them with fresh ones. And that doesn't ones. happen in our in our retina. It doesn't happen in our retina. It doesn't happen in our brain because really the retina is an outgrowth of the brain. So the eye is sort of part of it. Actually, is part of the central nervous system. It is brain tissue, and during development, the retina actually grows out of your primitive brain. Um, it has many of the same properties that, that the brain tissue does. And just like the brain, when you have a stroke, or just like the spinal cord, when you get a, a spinal cord injury, a traumatic injury, it can't regenerate, uh, regenerate function. So if you have a trauma even, uh, like an impact or a cut in your, a tear in your retina, um, there's no way that this tissue will, will heal itself on its own. Um, so these cells are very resistant to, to regeneration or, or even proliferating. Um, so when, when cells are gone, they're really gone for good in, in the adult. Okay, so you hope to use stem cells. So what, are, what is special about stem cells that they can overcome this problem? Sure. Uh, so stem cells have a, a number of features that might help them overcome the problem. One of them uh, is they're, they're readily expandable and pro they proliferate to a great extent in culture. So we could potentially get many, many cells to replace um, these diseases, uh, to, to, to the, the lost cells that are damaged during retinal degeneration. Uh, so for example, uh, this, um, some, some ophthalmologists have suggested that you may need upwards of 10 million new photoreceptors. These are that, the light-sensitive cells in the eyes. Yes, it's, it's, it's a lot of cells to, to have to replace, to, to get some functional restoration of vision. Um, to, to get enough cells, you really want to start with a, with a cell that's readily expandable uh, in a culture, so in a dish. And so what our, our retinal stem cells show is that we can get many thousand-fold uh, increases in the number of cells over just a, a few weeks. 
um, in the dish. So the, the, getting that population to expand and proliferate is, is really one of the key elements that makes retinal stem cells attractive. Okay. The second one uh, is that they can differentiate into any uh, type of cell um, in the adult retina. So, oh, okay. So, so are, there, are there lots of different types of cells in a retina? Or is yes. One? Okay. Uh, so the, the retina is actually composed of seven different uh, cell types. The really important ones for vision that I look at replacing in my work are the photoreceptors. Yeah. These are the first cells that detect light when it comes into the eye. And they're the ones that transduce or convert a light energy into a, a chemical uh, an electrical potential, essentially, across the cell membrane. So these, it's converting. It's an energy transduction. So the light energy is converted to a cell potential. So we've said that um, one of the main advantages of stem cells, or one of the unique abilities of stem cells, is this differentiation process yeah. to go from um, a generalized cell and differentiate to something more, more uh, with a more specific function. So how does it know what to differentiate to? That's, that's, a, that's a very big question in, in stem cell science, not just in retinal stem cells, but even in embryonic stem cell work where you're starting with a cell that can make an entire embryo and trying to figure out how it makes all of those different tissues uh, in the adult organism. Um, retinal so stem cells are already challenging. Is an embryonic stem cell at the top of the, the chain? It is considered to be at the top of the stem cell hierarchy in terms of its what we call potential. Um, so we talk about differentiation potential in, in, at, at different levels. Um, pluripotent means that a, cell, uh, a stem cell can turn into any of the different uh, cell types in the adult animal, so a gut cell, or a heart cell, or a blood cell, or a brain cell. Um, multipotential means that a stem cell is restricted in its potential. It can only make cell types of a very specific tissue. And our retinal stem cells that, that, that we're working with um, are multipotential. So they can only make um, retinal cell types, uh, so any of those seven cell types of the right. adult retina. So already we've narrowed the field in a sense. We, we already know that we can, we have, they only have seven different cell types to choose from. The trick then is to figure out what are the environmental cues? What are the sorts of chemical factors in, in, a, in a defined culture that we have in a dish that can coax these multipotent cells to become one particular cell type? And, and we have made some recent progress around, around that, what we call directed differentiation. Under general um, media, media conditions in the dish, they'll turn into all seven types. So when you say dish, do you mean literally a dish? Uh, literally a dish. Okay. It's a plastic, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a polystyrene dish. And it's, uh, I mean, they're given essential amino acids, uh, they're given minimal uh, growth factors, and they're given a little bit of serum to keep them alive. And these cells will spontaneously change from their multipotent state, undifferentiated, uh, into the different seven types of cells in, in, in different proportions. And so under a certain condition, do they all do the same thing? Uh, yes. So actually, that, that's recently we've been able to, uh, and, and we recently published this, um, this work uh, earlier this year, a set of defined conditions where we can coax all of these uh, retinal stem cells to turn into rod photoreceptors. The idea of replacing one specific cell population is very attractive. And so we found some culture conditions where we can get over 90% pure uh, oh, wow. differentiation from our retinal stem cells, which is much higher than previously reported in the literature. Other uh, previous rates were around 10 to 15 percent. Wow. Um, so this is, uh, now that we're getting very highly pure cultures, we can do much more in terms of working with our experimental models um, and seeing how these, this specific population of broad photoreceptors behaves when we do transplantation. 
so I guess ideally you you define a recipe under which to to derive each of those seven types. Ideally, yes. Yeah. Uh, one other approach that we've looked at actually in the lab is trying to um, find a way to to get embryonic stem cells to turn into retinal stem cells. Sort of, can we, at an intermediate stage, can we purify out retinal stem cells from those cultures? And we've had some early success in actually finding a population of cells that are retinal stem cell-like that we can then purify out of those cultures. But that's still a, um, it's still an advantage of starting with a defined, what we call adult stem cell population. Something that's multipotent, that's found in the adult and it's tissue specific. So is the problem of coaxing embryonic stem cells or uh, pluripotent stem cells into exactly what you want, is that even a relevant problem anymore? If we can start with the multipotent cells that we need? I think it's, I think it's still a, a relevant problem. It's, it's certainly a field that we should continue to, to pursue. These cells proliferate much, much faster than the ones that we, we generate from the adult and have been shown for a number of years that they can uh, they can be maintained in culture for many, many months. Um, so there's already a, a really, um, really strong line of research that suggests that we can get a lot of cells from these embryonic stem cells. Um, I don't think that, that these advances in tissue-specific stem cells uh, say that the embryonic stem cell field has become obsolete. And certainly there's a number of other questions you can answer from embryonic stem cells beyond just therapeutics, but also about our, our biology and how we develop. Um, a lot of the ways that embryonic stem cells turn into more mature cells in the body mimic normal developmental processes, and it's being shown more and more that these, uh, same, uh, these same factors that are important for differentiating those embryonic stem cells into mature cell types are, are the same processes that are taking place uh, when an embryo grows from a, from a fetus into, into an adult human. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and Great. talk to our audience. And uh, good luck in your defense. Thank you. We'll hear even more about the broad applications of stem cell technologies in the following episodes when Professor Ian Rogers will answer questions that were submitted by students in the audience at Stem Cell Talks. Remember that these questions could be yours. Visit our site at explorecuriosity.org, on Facebook, or tweet us at LTS Out Loud, and let us know what questions you'd like to have answered and you could be the one asking them. We'll now move on to our main conversation between Professor Derek Vanderkoy and Claire Moffat. Hi, I'm Claire, and I'm a grade 10 science student, and I'm excited to be interviewing Dr. Vanderkoy today. I'm Derek Vanderkoy, and I'm a professor in the molecular genetics department at the University of Toronto, and I'm thrilled to be interviewed by Claire. <laughs> I just have some general questions about stem cells in general. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering about induced pluripotent stem cells. So how exactly would the scientists manifest the pluripotent genes? Like what's the process yeah. in that doing that? So, so the, the way they were discovered is, is just looking at what genes are expressed in embryonic stem cells. And these are the cells that are uh, the cells that are coming from, so when the six days after the sperm fertilizes the egg, you get a small embryo called a blastocyst. And at that stage, six, six days after fertilization, you can isolate these things called embryonic stem cells. They can grow fantastically in a dish and make any tissue in the body. Right. Okay. So uh, that was the discovery of, of, of ES cells. Uh, and then they looked at what genes were expressed in the ES cells, and there's all kinds of them, of course, right? Mm -hmm. But they looked for genes that are only in ES cells and not in more differentiated cells. And they thought that those genes might be critical for maintaining or inducing 
the phenotype. And this is the experiment that Yamanaka did uh, five years ago. And so we did a very clever experiment. He took adult fibroblasts, skin cells, and started putting different combinations of the genes that are highly expressed specifically in ES cells and put them into fibroblasts. And he got it narrowed, he started with a whole pile and then gradually narrowed it down to just four genes that are, that are expressed in ES cells that if you put them in fibroblasts will change them, induce them to be pluripotent cells, essentially take them back to an ES-like cell type. And that was the sh- shocking thing, right? Mm-hmm. That it could do it with four genes because people thought it was going to be, you know, there'd be hundreds or thousands of proteins that were necessary to reprogram an adult nucleus that's making fibroblast genes, yeah. turn off all the fibroblast genes and turn on all the genes in the embryo, mm-hmm. in the early embryonic stem cell that can then make an entire embryo. But that was the most shocking thing, that it only took four genes to do it. Right. So why do you think some of the practical applications of it can be, or have there been any yet? Yeah. I guess not practical yet. I, I think that you probably know that there's some, some people have ethical objections to using embryonic stem cell because right. it means destruction of the early embryo to get the cells out. Uh, I don't personally have a problem with that because usually embryonic stem cells are isolated from extra embryos that couples are going to throw away because right. they've had as many kids as they want and they don't need any more. And the IVF clinic. Yeah, they don't need any more embryos, right? So usually they're destroyed and I think it's better to try and isolate ES cells from them that might be interesting and useful than throw away the embryos. But some people do have objections to using uh, ES cells. But no one really has objections to using IPS cells because it's essentially a skin cell, one of your own skin cells. And you say, yes, I'm going to give a skin mm-hmm. cell up. And uh, you put the, the four, what are now called the Yamanaka factor genes into them, mm-hmm. change them into IPS cells. And what in principle they could be used for is treating any disease that you get. If you get Parkinson's disease, then you can try and change the IPS cells into dopamine neurons to replace yeah. that. If you've got some sort of blood disorder, you can maybe try and change the IPS cells into blood cells to replace the, uh, the blood cells that are missing. Right. Now, I say that like it's easy, but of course, actually convincing the IPS cells to make exactly the cell type you want is turns out to be incredibly difficult, and people, no one's really solved that problem completely. Mm-hmm. We can enrich for certain cell types, but nobody's been able to get a cell to only produce dopamine neurons and not another cell type. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of work to be done, but in principle... Uh, you should be able to replace any of your own cells. And the nice thing about using IPS cells is, is there's no immune reaction, right? You're using your own cell types, so right. you won't get a rejection due to uh, the immune system recognizing cells from another person. They're your own cells that you're just reprogramming back into into pluripotent cells and then into the type of cell that you're missing. So I think this is really the, uh, one of the futures of, of uh, stem cell biology is IPS cells. But the other future is using the endogenous stem cells, adult stem cells that are in each of our tissues. So I mentioned the stem cells in the brain, uh, and you mentioned too, could we use them for treating other types of disorders? And the answer is, once we know the stem cells are there in the brain, then we eventually can we develop drugs that will stimulate those stem cells in vivo, in, in a live person, right. to make dopamine neurons. So, so rather than doing a dish, give drugs that, that convince the adult stem cells to make new dopamine neurons right in the brain. And so, right. you know, rather than doing transplants or anything, if you could design small molecules and drugs that convince the stem cell to make dopamine neurons, that'd be fantastic. So that'd be some kind of chemical stimulant. Absolutely. And now you also mentioned using your own stem cells and how that has less immune rejection. So in terms of the autologous stem cell use, let's say you have cancer, for example. Do you think the same genes that caused the cancer in the first place might be in your own stem cells to start with? Yeah, so, so uh, it's a good question. So it, sometimes they will be, sometimes they won't. So if the mutation that caused cancer happened in the stem cell itself, 
then you're toast, yeah. right? Because even if you transplant, take your own stem cells out, blood stem cells, for example, transplant them back in, they're going to have the same mutation. But if the mutation happened in a progenitor cell, mm -hmm. downstream of the stem cell, then in principle, if you isolated the stem cells, they won't have the mutation because the mutation happens somatically oh, in a downstream cell. And uh, we know both things are possible. So uh, there's a, a scientist in Toronto, John Dick, who's, uh, who's sort of the, uh, has proposed the cancer stem cell hypothesis. And there's sort of a weak and a strong version of that hypothesis. The weak version is that uh, you can, uh, lots of different types of cells if they get mutations, can turn back into a cancer stem cell that will proliferate and cause cancer. Right. Right? The strong version is that cancer, the cell that's mo most likely to cause cancer is a cell that's already a stem cell because it already has proliferative advantage. Right? Right. And so if you, if you get mutations in a stem cell, it's already got a leg up on forming a tumor because it normally proliferates and repopulates cells. Yeah. And if you just give it a bit more oomph by causing more growth, it'll form tumors. And there's good evidence that both things happen. So you can put oncogenes, which are cancer-causing genes in animals, into blood progenitor cells and get leukemias, get mm -hmm. uh, blood disease. But you can also sometimes do it to uh, stem cells as well. So both things are possible. So I guess in answer to your question, you really have to know whether the mutation that's causing the cancer happened in the stem cell or happened in a downstream cell that turned it into a cell that had huge proliferative ability and could form a tumor. And depending on which one of those answers comes up, you could imagine using your own cells or having to use a, an immunologically matched transplant from a, a person who doesn't have cancer. I guess a lot of problems with stem cells is that the ethics behind them, a lot of people are concerned about using embryonic stem cells, but they seem to be the most powerful. So what do you think about this problem and how do you think we could overcome it? Yeah. So, so uh, there, there are people that, that object and, and object very strenuously to the use of embryonic stem cells because uh, they've been derived by uh, embryos that are sacrificed, right? Mm -hmm. and, and one argument that I think is a, a reasonable argument against that is that these are embryos that after in vitro fertilization would have been discarded and destroyed anyway. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, you know, those embryos were going to die anyway. And yeah. There's nothing much you could have done. Why not use them for isolating embryonic stem cells? But some people still object to that. They think we should never throw embryos away. Yeah. Uh, the induced pluripotent cells are sort of a way to make embryonic stem cell-like cells out of adult cells. And so then there's no death of an embryo of an early embryo. You're just taking a, an adult skin cell, one of your own skin cells, and turning it back into an ES-like cell, an induced yeah. pluripotent cell. And so that should have less ethical objections. But, but just think about it a little bit. Is it really ethically less challenged? Because you're now creating a cell, an induced pluripotent cell, that has the ability to make any cell in the body. So shouldn't we think that that induced pluripotent cell has the same right to life yeah. <laughs> that an ES cell does? Because, you know, eventually, we, we know in mice that a single induced pluripotent cell can make an entire mouse. Mm -hmm. So I would say that induced pluripotent cell has mousehood. Yeah. You know, sort of analogy to personhood. That yeah. cell has mousehood. So have we really ethically escaped the problem? I'm not sure we have. And yeah. most people have not. I, I think it hasn't. That Most people aren't considering that yet. But I think the issue is still there. Yeah. So uh, I, and it's worth, worth thinking about, I think. Be sure to tune into our upcoming episodes for the rest of Claire's interview with Professor Vanderkoy and to hear Professor Ian Rogers join us to answer student-submitted questions from Stem Cell Talks. Remember that this could be your interview and your questions. Just go online, visit us at explorecuriosity.org, post questions on our Facebook page, 
or tweet questions at LTS Out Loud. You could have them answered by leading scientists, and you could be the one asking them. Thank you for listening to Let's Talk Science Out Loud. Thanks to our producers, Nika Shakiba and Emily Beckett-Sward, Let's Talk Science, and the Trillium Foundation for their online engagement grant. Extra special thanks to Dundas, Ontario native Dan Snaith of Caribou for allowing us to use his music. Check him out at caribou.fm. Please be sure to visit our website at explorecuriosity.org slash LTS out loud. Submit your questions for future episodes on the site, on Facebook, or tweet us at LTS out loud. Subscribe to the podcast on the site, on SoundCloud, or in the iTunes store. And let us know what you think of the show.